Hey, what's up? Welcome to Basecraft. So it feels like ages since I've done one of these, but um, it's only been a few weeks because I know the last one was Simon Francis, a whopper double part three-hour episode. But uh, I was actually on holidays there. I was in Spain walking the Camino. It's like this pilgrimage you do. I wasn't doing it for any like religious reasons. I just wanted to go and clear my head. So I did 200 kilometers in seven days. Absolutely loved it. Sore feet now, but the head is clear and... Um, I'm re-energized to do some of this stuff. Um, if you want to know anything about it, just drop me a line. It's really a class thing to do, especially after all this COVID stuff. You know, just being on computers and being that, hearing people talk about that all the time. It just got withering. So there was no COVID talk on this and almost no technology used. And it was absolutely perfect. So yeah, if anyone wants to know about it, just send me a message. I can tell you about it. Highly recommend it. So today I'm talking to Joel MacGyver, the editor of Bass Pair Magazine, but he's been the editor of Bass Guitar Magazine since 2012. So one's an American magazine, one's the British one, and we talk about that in the chat. So yeah, we talk about loads of stuff, I suppose. Um, what's popular in the bass world right now, ba- the longevity of the bass magazine, and of course his own career as a writer outside of the bass magazine world. So he co-wrote a few uh, biographies. He did um, Glenn Hughes, that was one of his first big ones, and um, he has a new one out in October, this, in a few weeks actually. It's called Fathers, Brothers and Sons, Surviving Anguish, Abandonment and Antrax. So that's Frank Bello, um, the bass player from Antrax, his new book which is co-written with Joel it sounds amazing he was telling me about it in the in this episode and I'm really looking forward to get getting that so yeah hope you enjoy the episode guys as usual like subscribe all that um, I'm taking a little break from uploading stuff on YouTube apart from the podcast because I just need to take a break from being on the screen so much after you know the, la- the summer and I uploaded a lot of things so if you want to see where I'm at at the moment just follow me on Instagram so I still upload stuff there because it takes no time it's just literally just click and record what I'm doing and just pop it up so yeah see you in a minute and uh, yeah enjoy this one. Oh, I still have a box of Basecraft t-shirts so if you're looking to get someone something for Christmas get in there now I'll send it to you and you'll be sorted any bass player or musician will be delighted to get one so yeah enjoy the episode Joel, delighted to have you on, the editor of Bass Player, and you were, it was Bass Player Mag before that? Uh, it was Bass Guitar Mag before Bass that. Guitar Mag. Yeah, so the, um, let me see now, my history as the editor of this magazine, um, uh, I started freelancing for them, writing the old feature here and there in about 2002, 2003, um, when it was Bass Guitar Magazine in the UK. And, um, you know, I would write the odd piece for them. Time passed, I wrote, wrote a lot of stuff for them. Uh, and we always had, as our kind of archetype, like the best bass magazine in the world, easy, was Bass Player, the American mag, as you know, you know, it was like this insanely good mag that had been going since 1990. And we, at Bass Guitar Magazine, always wanted to try and equal that mag if we could, you know, that was our gold standard. <clears throat> then in 2012, I became the editor of that mag. And, uh, you know, I wrote books on the side and continued to do all that and did freelance stuff. And it was just all part of the freelance portfolio. And then, uh, what do I want to say? I think in about 2018, that magazine was bought by Future Publishing, who run Metal Hammer and Guitar World and Guitarist and all these killer magazines, uh, for whom I'd also freelanced for years and years as a writer for Metal Hammer, right? And Total Guitar and Rhythm, millions of magazines, billions of them, it feels like. (laughs) And um, so suddenly I I was the editor of a magazine owned by Future, and then they did this interesting thing. Future acquired... Uh, the American publisher of Bass Player and Guitar World and Guitar Player and a bunch of cool mags. Uh, and so then I was now the editor of Bass Player and Bass Guitar. 
<clears throat> excuse me, the uh, English and the American mag, which I know sounds weird. Different mm. countries. So it was exactly then, the same magazine, just a different. They were, yeah, 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 cover. they were. And then um, uh, last year we decided to um, change the British mag's name to Bass Player UK. So here we go. So now I was the editor of Bass Guitar for many years. Then I was editing both mags, even though they were the same. And now I'm editing Bass Player, and they are continuing to be the same, except one has uh, British English and one has American English. Uh, so that's uh, that's my day job, really. That's, that takes up most of my time. And then uh, I write a book or two a year as well, all of which adds up to, uh, well, they say uh, a career is something that you look back on, isn't it? <laughs> Two years later, I had a career, you know. No, you have a serious CV, like uh, I've, I have a list of your books here, like, and you, you, it's like a who's who of metal and rock, so we'll get into that. Um, wow. Do you play much bass yourself? Is yeah, yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole, whole bunch from here and a few guitars and there's a sitar over there you probably can't see because it's tucked around the corner. And um, my kids have got guitars and basses in their rooms upstairs and there's a piano and there's a drum kit. So this place is absolutely full of uh, instruments. And so I play bass as much as I can. In fact, you can't see in this, but I've got a couple of big old bass amps right here in my office. Big old pedal board, packed full of stuff. A couple of little practice amps here and there. It's just packed um so as much as i can i do um i'm not a professional bass player i'm a decent bass player i can play you know you know everything except the most complex stuff you know what i mean um <clears throat> and i make no no pretensions to be able to double thumb and, and to, you know do, mm. do chin style tapping and stuff but i can hold down a line and i can be funky or i can do what you want basically um but uh, i'm really a writer a professional writer who happens to play bass and that, that makes me a decent candidate for editor of this magazine. The other way of doing it is that you get a professional bass player and you train that person to be an editor, you know, which is, which is often done as well. It, well either situation works. Mm. It's a nice position. You probably get to try a lot of cool gear, do you, that comes in oh for the God. magazine? I mean, it is, the, it is the ultimate privilege of this magazine. So obviously I have my team of gear testers, uh, most of whom are um, much better bass players than me. Um, and uh, we get sent all this amazing stuff. So whether it's your super, super high-end Foderas and all that good stuff and, you know, boutique stuff. Um, there's a luthier over here called um, Anaconda who makes this crazy, amazing stuff. And all the way down to your, your $200 base, you know, that, that lately I'm kind of pushing more towards um, playing myself because I remember, I'm, I'm a bit older than you, I think. I remember growing up in the 80s when if you spent less than a few hundred quid or dollars on a bass guitar, it was invariably of really poor quality or, and you never knew what you were getting. And that's not the case nowadays because of the manufacturing technology, mm. right? Um, but it, almost always the product quality control is incredible, even at a low level. Um, so I'm pushing more in the magazine towards giving space to affordable bass gear. Um, not because I don't love those, those super expensive ones, of course I do, um, but because the actual reader that the everyday professional player or semi-professional amateur player isn't going to lay out $10,000 on a base no. more than twice in a lifetime, if ever. Uh, so I spend a lot of time looking at these mid-market um, entry-level bases even. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I'm continually impressed by them. You know, you can get yourself a decent Ibanez or Yamaha or Squire, actually. Those, those are amazing things. Epiphone, you know, LTD, all those... Um, what used to be called budget brands, but are actually just affordable, reasonable quality brands. You yeah, can you get can, them yeah. at a highly affordable price, you know, which I yeah, really you, like. You play professionally with them. Like I have uh, one of the bass I play the most is a Squire P bass that I put new pickups in, and that's grand to go professional. What pickups did you put in? I just put Zebra Duncan quarter pounders yeah. in it, and 
it's a lot, it, it got the base something with a bit more, bit more beef. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, even the stock pickups aren't bad. And then you can always get yourself some sort of external preamp, can't you? Step on a sand lamp or step on it. Yeah, have a, sa- have a sand lamp. Your preference may be. Does the job. Yeah, great. Yeah. In fact, I just got, just got sent, here we go, today, the new uh, fly rig, which is oh, yeah. new Tech 21. Um, it's like the portable version of a, of a sand lamp. So in fact, mm-hmm. it is. Look. So I'll be stepping on that later on. Yeah, it's a great time for affordable base gear. And that's what one of the reasons um, that it's fun to edit this magazine. Yeah, there's a few super cheap brands coming out. Uh, I haven't played myself. Glary, have you heard of them? They're like a hundred. Nope. They're like a hundred dollars. They say. They, I think their marketing thing is they give a free one to loads of influencers on YouTube and they play them. And people, but they're actually supposed to be. I was talking to a guy who got one, and um, he said it's actually really good. He was blown away for a hundred dollar base, like what it was yeah, like. Some of these things are absolutely fine. Um, you know, you're still less likely. I think the the product quality is not the problem. It's will it last 10 years of gigging? That's the problem. Mm. And of course, as a reviewer uh, on a bass magazine, I get sent a brand new instrument that plays really well, but I can't tell you what it's going to be like after gigging it for five years. That, I think, is where paying for quality really helps. You get longevity out of your instrument. Yeah, I've done like a thousand gigs on my Fender Airdyne and the pickups are a bit broken now, but it's I could still do a gig with it. Like They're a bit scratchy. Right. But it's there you go. Surviving. Whereas the $100 base you talked about a minute ago might not have lasted more than 20 gigs. So, you know, they say, um, is it buy cheap, buy twice? Is that the yeah, expression? Yeah, that's it, yeah. So it's like the the carpenters saying, uh, measure measure once, measure twice, cut measure once. Measure twice, cut once. <laughs> <laughs> Are you surprised by the longevity of the format of the bass player magazine? Or the mag- just the magazine, the guitar magazine as a thing, considering... As a every- print, print magazines, you mean? Yeah, print magazines, <clears throat> considering di- how we're in a digital world. Uh, no, I'm not um, surprised by the longevity of print magazines for several reasons one they're really high quality product um and two uh it's really people over 40 uh, who are buying these things not always but people like me who have never really taken to reading a digital magazine i mean you know i read ours and i'll pick them up from time to time but i'd much rather have the artifact i don't know if you can see oh there you go yeah under that base box of my finger nice that's every that's every issue of the mag that i've edited Cool. Um, and I, I love those things, right? And I, I keep them as a, <clears throat> I treasure them as artifacts. So, and I think people still, still like those things. Um, and I think we have a good few years left of, of printed mags. I know for a fact, well, I know for a fact, I presume that books will, will last more decades than that because that really is a collectible artifact that people like to have around their houses. Um, at the same time though, yeah, you can't deny that digital publishing has come right up and advertising has gone down and paper costs have gone up. And there's a massive global <laughs> pandemic. So, you know, print magazines are having a bit of a fight. And a lot of good ones have gone down in the last few years. Mm. Um, in the case of Bass Player, there really aren't any other... Um, okay, what are we? We're the last English-language print magazine that's only about bass in the world, right? Mm. So there are print magazines in different languages that are about bass. A good one is from uh, Holland. It's called Die Bassist. <laughs> run, run by a friend of mine, Chris Decker. Like the name. Uh, yeah, yeah, do bassist. I've no idea if that's how you pronounce it or if you have to do that when you say it. You know, probably called the bassist. Yeah, something like um, something. Yeah, we like that. Dutch. <laughs> um, and then uh, there are many, many digital magazines, PDFs, whatever. Um, there's a, a good one set up by the former writers of our magazine called just called Bass Magazine in America. They're nice guys. Um, what's that? Bass musician? Bass. Bass. Gear, that's it. Yeah, that's run by a guy called Tom 
Bolus, uh, who wrote a review for us recently of the new neural DSP quad cortex. So there's, there's a lot of decent um, digital mags, all basically covering the same thing. Mm. Um, but if you want, if you happen to be of the demographic that values print, then base play is really the, the, the one that's left. And uh, we do our best to make it a really nice, tangible artifact that doesn't cost too much. And you can rely on and have the best people writing for it. So that, that's, that's how we've done well. So has, the ba- has the basic kind of format of the magazine changed over the years? Like, it, it was, is it still st- people on the front, interviews, uh, a few lessons at the back, and a few kind of gear reviews in the middle? That yeah, that's it, right? Sounds, sounds really boring when you say it like that, right? So <laughs> that's what we not do boring. Is... I have loads of them here. I love them. <laughs> so we have a new section at the front. So you've been hit with all the latest developments in the base world. Uh, although, obviously, when you're, when you're a, a printed magazine and you're up against, you know, um, websites that have instant news then you know you have to wonder um you have to wonder how much space to devote to it right when you could be devoting the magazine space to other things so as as that for that reason we devote most of our space to uh interviews with the musicians right now these are the best people we have access to the best bass players just because of the you know who we are and what we do and we're very lucky we don't take that for granted or you know um uh, we, we we don't um we don't stop appreciating that um, so then we have a load of those. That's where the rock and roll happens and the fun and the crazy stories and the, you know, um, the deep, deep sort of dive into their gear that they play and the history and all the, you know, God, what do we do? We have, we have the oldest, most pioneering of upright jazz bass players, you know, right through mm. to the newest YouTubers, right? Well, our next cover, as, as, I, as I do this interview with you, our next cover has got a bunch of YouTubers on, including... Or, uh, yeah, that was Simon. another question I was going to ask, like, do you, do you ever get a kind of a blowback? So, uh, you did a cover with Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa, yeah, we did, yeah. yeah. And it was a really um, good interview. I read it, you did the interview with him. Uh, very yeah, good. Yeah, that was and, me, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and he's well informed, too. Yeah, just to finish up, so we do the, the artist interviews, and then we have a bunch of reviews, try and get those, uh, a really wide range of gear reviewed. Mm. Um and uh, then we have our lessons at the end, right? Which is a significant chunk of page count, actually. I think we have uh, three, five or six page lessons, and then a couple that are uh, one or two pages. So you get, you get real schooling, you know what I mean, when you read our mag. Now, Jason Momoa, depends what you mean by blowback. I mean- I, I was just reading the, some of the comments. Some um, people were saying, why is he, 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 why is he on- Why is he in the mag, dude? Exactly, there's always those guys, they're keyboard warriors, you know? <laughs> In fairness, we can all be a bit like that. You know, yeah, I love yeah. those guys. You know, I I I, I uh, go to our social media quite a lot and interact with people, and uh, those people really care. You know, that they're mm. there because they care. That's the point. And if occasionally it gets a bit um, rowdy in there, then that's fine. It's not the end of the world. Yeah, we just a bit of that. discourse isn't isn't a bad so, thing. So basically, I I've come to realise that when people say, "Oh my God, man, there was so much blowback on that magazine." Excuse me. <clears throat> What that means is a couple of people were annoyed in the comments on a social media platform. Mm. If the magazine continues to sell well, which it did, and if advertising continues to be high, which it was, really, you know, what have we done? We've pleased a lot of people, you know. If thousands and thousands of people refused to buy an issue because of who was on the cover, then of yeah. course that would be serious. But that never happens. Mm. Um, I think our, our uh, readers are a pretty um, broad-minded bunch. Um, they know... Or rather, I know not to insult their intelligence by putting someone on the cover who is not a bass player. Mm. Now, Jason Momoa, of course, he's an actor. He's Aquaman. You know, he was in Game of Thrones. I get it. You know, it's a controversial choice. But he's a bass player. He plays bass every single day. That's what he told me. Yeah. Um, he do- I interviewed how his many of us teacher. do that? There are professional bass players who don't, don't play bass every no. single day. You know. I interviewed his bass teacher last week. So he was Jake Gerber. You know what I go? Yeah, yeah. 
and he was telling me he practices a lot and he's really good at the slap stuff. So yeah, he definitely deserves to be so, on it. Right, absolutely. So over and above his skills as a bass player and whether people think he should be on the cover, the guy's attitude towards bass is phenomenal, right? So he grew up in poverty, as he told me. There was no way that he would have a guitar or a bass or any instrument in the household where he grew up because there was no money. So as and when he became wealthy enough to afford those things, he went at it really hard. So his motivation to play bass is inspiring. Um, and that, I think, is the, is the lesson of that story, right? He's not just a guy who happened to pick up bass just to see what it was like. It was really important to him. It's like a kind of an existential thing for him. So that's why it's important to read about those people. Um, not because they're famous, not because they look pretty. Um, obviously, he's a great cover star because of his fame. Um, but, you know, in a way, I agree with all the people on the, on the uh, Facebook page who wrote in response to the, to the criticism, look, if this guy brings bass to a generation of people who otherwise would not have heard of it, isn't that good for all of us? Isn't that good for our community? And of course the answer is yes, it is. Because what bass player does is represent the bass community. We're not critical of it or we're not just inhabiting it. We're kind of part of it in a really directive way. And, and we want the bass to do well. It's what we do out of, our, out of passion, you know. And it's not just a job to me and the people who work on this magazine. We are bass players. We want the magazine to do well. We want people to understand that it's the coolest instrument there is, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And to have some fun, you know, and to meet some cool people. So that's really what we do. And it is hard to sell the bass to young kids. Like even when I'm doing my lessons, like you, you get, it's just, it, there's not as many people that want to learn the bass because they don't know what it is. So you're right. The more they see it in the media, the more they might go, I want to play that instrument. I saw Aquaman playing it or whoever, like. Right. It's only good for all of us. So this will be out after the episode with the YouTuber comes that YouTubers on the cover comes out. So that kind of leads into that, that you're putting some who, who who's on like Charles Bertude and these kind of guys, is it? Precisely. Occasionally what we do is we run a special issue that has different covers, right? So this issue that's coming out has four covers. First one is uh, Davey 504. Everyone knows who that is who's watching this. This mad Italian who does this. I'm a big defender of him on this. I'm always defending him. I'm saying he is one of the best slap sounds I've ever heard, and he's really getting people into the bass. And he's a good guy. You know, he did a great interview. And I said, no one knows anything about your past, really. Can you talk about, you know, being inspired by Gene Simmons and all that kind of stuff? And he looks so kind of impenetrable on the video. He's like, slap. You know, he doesn't <laughs> smile. Oh, I love all that stuff. That's clearly just a front. And he's got 9 million subscribers, right? He is the most subscribed person in, in Italy, which is mm. not a small country, right? I mean, no. major, it's, it's a major cultural presence. Um, so him, yeah. Uh, so he's one of the covers. Then the next one is um, uh, an influencer on TikTok and YouTube called April K, who is this excellent bass player, funk bass player. She's a model, but she kind of started doing these videos of her playing bass which has attracted a ton of okay. interest. I'm not on TikTok, so I'm not aware of her at all, actually. Yeah, yeah, I'm not either. But um, that would be tragic, a 50-year-old man. <laughs> you mean you don't put your phone in front of you and do those Right, dance. right, right, and do dance videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that would be quite a sight. Um, so April K, and uh, she's, uh, I think it's like 23 or 25 or something. And then there's Blue the Tiger, who you might have heard of. Um, yeah. This uh, She is a bass player and a DJ from New York who did these DJ sets, but while she was doing her DJ sets, she pulled out a bass and played along with the songs, right, as they were coming out in a nightclub, which is a great idea. People loved all that. And then the last one is Daryl Freeman, who um, records videos on YouTube under the name The Real Free. 
and he does these super cool things. It ties in with what you just said, actually, about young people not knowing much about bass. He does these, is it electric bass or is it synth bass video? You got to check Oh, yeah, out. now I know to go, yeah. He right, so really he, cool. he is a keyboard player, so he whips out a keyboard and does this kind of cool, kind of cool Stevie Wonder lines on a bass synth, uh, and then does the same thing on a bass guitar, and it's, it's, um, it's educational, you know, if you're, into, if you're into any kind of music. So that's the new issue. Um, so you could say that's a bit, you know, non-traditional for us, but what I say in my editorial and in the interview with these people is, look, you may think, if you're a bass player of a certain age, like me, that being a bass player means mastering your instrument in private, going out on stage and playing a gig to a live audience, or recording your music onto a bit of plastic, like a CD that then gets sold. <clears throat> Clearly, that's not what happens now, right? So these people are making tons and tons of money. Not that that's the primary focus of the piece, but they are being well paid and they are successful. And they're bringing bass to, to a generation of people who might otherwise not do that because there is no money in selling stuff. There's a pandemic, so you can't go out and play live. Um, so to counteract that, because it is a non-traditional cover, you know, what did we have before that? We had John Paul Jones on the cover. There'll be a McCartney cover at some point. Um, the, the, you know, no doubt Victor Wooten and Marcus Miller and, and the rest of those guys that we often have on our covers will appear mm -hmm. in due course. Um, so in fact, there's Geezer Butler coming up as well. That's an exclusive for you. Um, cool. Nice Geezer Butler cover, yeah. Um, so we try and serve everybody is what we're saying. But, but obviously, if you try and serve everybody, you can't please everybody, right? No. So there's always some um, protest and aggression among the um, more vocal of, uh, of our followers on social media. But, I, you know, I don't take it that seriously. At you least know, they care. The That's probably be well. worse if there was no comments. It was just like, no one cares <clears throat> about this magazine anymore. It's right. going to die. I admire the fact that these people care. It means a lot to them. Some of them have been reading our magazine for 30 years. We had a special 30th anniversary issue last year, uh, which was fun because Billy Sheehan had been on the cover of number one in 1990. And I got him to pose at NAM for the cover of the 30th issue, 30th anniversary issue, holding magazine number one, you know, <laughs> which was, which was kind of cool, sort of coming full circle kind of thing. And uh, not only that, Bass Player had its 400th issue last year. So last year was crazy, actually, despite all the, the pandemic stuff, just, uh, just on, on uh, Bass Player magazine. It was nuts. But, um, we got through it and did well, and uh, people liked what we did, so we're happy. Yeah, he started a YouTube channel. Uh, Billy did. Have you watched it? It's, he does these really long um, videos. He's like, he's in his shed, like with all these bases, and he's showing you because he likes tinkering with bases, and it's kind of cool. Great. To see people like him getting into <clears throat> uploading content, as you, you'd call it. Like, well, it's the time to do it, isn't it? When gigs are few, few and far between. Um, yeah, he's great, Billy. Uh, we drop each other a line every now and then, and uh, and uh, I remember. Uh, probably the second or third time I interviewed him. It's a long time ago. It might be like 12 years ago or something. I was sitting in a dressing room with him backstage at some show. And I said, come on, Billy, show me the most complex thing you know. He looked at me. You know, all right, watch this. And did this piece by Bach, uh, a double um, tapping with two hands thing. And I, yeah, it was nuts. And he wasn't even warmed up. And it was crazy. <laughs> I just had to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's my, someone else was telling me they were backstage with um, Marcus Miller. And all he was playing was bebop vocabulary, like all those lines. But then he went out on stage and it was more pentatonic stuff. So Interesting, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, there's a whole debate about the bebop vocabulary. Um, I think, I can't quite, I can't remember who I was talking to. It was one of those, one of those jazz heroes. It might have been Brian Bromberg. It could have been Jeff Berlin. It's not long ago. But one of them made the point that bebop vocabulary has only really been regarded as essential base um, theory since it was codified at the American music colleges in the 60s and 70s. Um, you don't have to learn that stuff to learn bass. Uh, 
No. Uh, there are many great reasons to do that, but it's not mandatory, right? So if you've Definitely got Marcus not. Miller going out and doing pentatonics, great. You know, who doesn't love playing those things? They're so warm and friendly and easy and they apply to almost everything. Um, you don't have to be given it. You know, you don't have to do that. You know, good if you can, but it's not mandatory. Yeah, I do rant a bit like that sometimes because um, some of my friends who play the bass, they don't, they're not really into like practicing as much or improving their craft. But I think a lot of that is because when they go online, the only they're just being told you need to learn some bebop vocabulary or you need to do all this stuff but sure you can get you really could do loads of practice just improving playing <laughs> the rock lines you know already or even breaking them apart and going what was what was he doing on that song like what was adam clayton doing on this song or you know there's plenty of practice yeah. just in that stuff i want to give a little plug here to uh, ariana cap uh the austrian bass player living yeah. in california she uh, has a book out uh an instructional book which takes a different view it it analyzes the patterns that you know on the fretboard already and then tells you the theory behind them mm-hmm. and how you can how you can exploit that because we all know a whole bunch of patterns don't we we yeah. might not know what they do but we know that we can we can run a particular sequence of notes and it'll sound cool in a particular mm-hmm. situation and what she's done is understand that we already have all that stuff um and then all we need to do really is understand what is behind that stuff uh, so that's something that people should check out. She's she's a, a very understanding teacher. There are millions of teachers. Not many of them are, are can get inside the students' heads as well as that. And uh, she really has done that. So. Yeah, she's very good. I, I watch her seminars on Scott Space Lessons. I've seen a bunch of them. Like she's a really good teacher. She's great. And you think as time goes on, like the the key bass thing will get more respected. Like, could you get in Bass Player Magazine if you didn't play the string bass, but you were mainly playing the the keys bass? I think given the number of bass players who we don't have room for in the mag, I can't imagine any time soon I would run someone who only plays synth bass. There mm. are already keyboard magazines, which are perfectly good. So I'm not, not knocking those skills, but the number of amazing bass players, I have to really regretfully say, look, I'm sorry, I can't fit you in, who are already great bass guitar players. Mm. You know, that, that, would, that would be a little bit uh, unwise, I think. Yeah, because a lot of the the session guys that I get on this, they don't. Some of them don't bother getting into synth pedals for their bass. They just buy a little keyboard, and it's really important to their uh, employability as a bass player. To just well, I will say, I think it's very sensible to do that. Yeah, if you're a bass guitar player, why not learn how to do a bit of synth bass? Um, it, and well, and why not backing vocals and all those other stuff? And you know, God, I don't know who was I talking to again. I keep scanning, but someone who said, "Make yourself useful in your band by." being uh, as multi-skilled as you can so oh yeah i think it was the band thunder i did their book a few years ago and i was talking to the bass player chris giles and if i'm right and sorry chris if you're watching this and i'm not he's a mixer so he, he he he's really good at doing mixes he's a graphic designer so he can do stuff for the t-shirts and for the merch and for the website and all that stuff and not only that he's an amazing upright and electric bass player, and I assume he does backing vocals as well. So mm. all that stuff makes you more employable, doesn't it, as a, yeah. as a person, let alone a bass player. So why not diversify? You know, why not? Why not learn a bunch of different stuff? Um, yeah, I'm all, I'm all in favour. Yeah, that's true. You may as well. Yeah, you have to like because you know you often see ads on Facebook or whatever. Bass player wanted must have backing vocals. So <laughs> and why not? Yeah, you know, you can learn to sing. <clears throat> you don't have to be a, a great singer. You just have to be able to hold a note here and there, you know. Yeah, if you sing in tune and you'll be okay for backing vocals. If you're not doing the lead, it doesn't matter. Right on. Uh, and in your own books, you, you just released the one with Frank Bello. That's from mm-hmm. Antrax. That's your new one. Coming out in October. Yeah, that's my, I think that's my 34th 
in uh, 22 years, yeah. So it's, uh, it's fathers, brothers, and sons. So I actually couldn't get an excerpt of it from online, but hopefully I'll pick up a copy soon. So basically, it's yeah, about... soon. It's out soonish. Mm. It's about. Uh, yeah, that was great. Have you met Frank? Uh, no, never. Total sweetheart. You know, one of the very, very nicest people in the, in this industry. I've known him probably. Oh, I don't know. Fifteen years, probably. Uh, on and off, you know, from interviewing him for various magazines, and I got to know him. Um, so this, we had this idea of doing the book. I don't know, eight years ago or something like that, because he has a hell of a story to tell. And I, I like to work with musicians who are interesting. Not not just musicians, people who are interesting. You know. Um, and Frank has had a, a, a very, very up and down life, you know, I mean, it's called Fathers, Brothers, Brothers and Sons because it's a bit different from the usual sort of heavy metal autobiography. Frank has had a turbulent life. Um, his uh, father was absent from a young age, um, leaving him with all sorts of abandonment issues. Um, his brother was murdered uh, in 1996 uh, in his 20s by, um, in, a, in a some sort of, gang related thing in New York um, and uh, there was a witness to the murder but the witness was intimidated by the criminals uh, and withdrew his testimony so Frank's family never had any closure on that um, and then all this all this anguish uh, Frank Frank is redeeming as those of us who are parents will know by being a good loving dad to his own son who's a teenager and I don't know if you have kids but I certainly certainly find that being a father is um it's not just rewarding it's like existentially important if you've been through any kind of trauma as we all have in in your lives um you can undo that and redeem that by 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 not passing on the trauma yeah being a good parent and a loving present dad break, break the chain of precisely and it's not it's interesting. This is not. This book is not solely aimed at men, but <clears throat> it does have a theme of where does where does the young heavy metal loving guy who knows who Frank Bello is because he likes Anthrax, where does he go for advice and um, reassurance if, like Frank, he was abandoned by his father um, and he's been through family trauma and he wants to be a good dad? Where do you go for that? You know, it's it's, it's not. Calling this book a self-help book is probably going a bit too far, but it's certainly heading in that direction. Mm. Um, and the idea is to to talk to people who've been through that stuff and to point out that there is redemption and there is a solution. Um, while, I have to say, at the same time, being a really, really funny book, right? It's the stuff that the Anthrax have done over the years is nuts. <laughs> the trash metal yeah. scene was a bit crazy. Anyway, like all the bands, they were all up to shenanigans. <laughs> like like you would not believe and a lot of these stories have been written and in fact this is not so much the story of anthrax because frank's bandmate scott ian did that really really well in two of his own books um this is more frank's own personal story but of course he talks about going on tour and the crazy stuff that happened backstage and and the, the drinking that they did with pantera and you know all, all the mad stuff that happened uh you know behind the, the, the public view um so all that is full of it so it is a really funny book it's not preachy at all it's hilarious uh, all the mad stuff that happened, uh, but it does have a sort of a serious underlying theme. Have you got a, a personal philosophy to what makes a brilliant biography? Like for me, it has to be like honest. You know, I couldn't read something that was just like he went there, we went there, we did this tour, that was great. Then we did this other gig. If, like I read Jerry McAvoy's, um, did you know the bass player Rory Gallagher for? No, I, I interviewed him yesterday. Oh really? Yeah, mm-hmm. it, for the his, magazine. Yeah, his book is fantastic. 
it's and I, I'm not going to sell some of the stories like, but he just he really put it all out there in the book, and for that reason, I was, you'd be glued to it. You'd finish it straight, really quickly. And well, I, I think what that. you what you just said is the answer to your question. He 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 gave you everything. Like you have to give something, I think, to your readers if you're gonna if you're gonna write an autobiography. Um, I read Eric Clapton's book, for example, and no disrespect to Eric, but he was very reserved emotionally and didn't give an awful lot of his inner thoughts to the people mm. who were investing time and money and reading the book. And you have to think about them. So when I said to Frank and all the other people I've done books with that we were doing a book, I said, look, just pretend you're talking to one person. You know? Imagine there's one person reading this. Talk to that person. Just like you're sitting down having a coffee with them or a beer with them or whatever. Just a conversation like you and me are doing now. That's how to get the tone right. It has to be intimate and friendly and you have to confide in people and be brave actually because it takes courage to put your life story down on paper it really does um so that's what i said be, be open and honest open probably being more important um you, you have to lay yourself open for people and that's why that's why it takes courage and frank certainly did that there's definitely a, a pro a you know, worry that you might offend people. Is that's and then that might make you not put this stuff in. Is that's would be a a barrier you'd come against? Like, uh, it can it can happen. Yeah. So when you do these books, they're obviously personal things. You know that people don't want to talk about. Um, you know they know their wives are going to read these books. They know their kids are going to read these books. So for that reason, sometimes you'll find someone who doesn't want to throw in too many backstage stories of groupies and drugs and all the rest of it, um, which is absolutely fine. Uh, the other thing is that you don't want to libel someone in these books, just as you don't in a magazine. You know, you don't mm. want to you don't want to end up in legal trouble, um, and that's never happened to anyone in one of my books um, yet. Such word. But uh, so you do have to be a little bit careful about what you put down on paper, because I say to these people, look, we can go and have a beer all you want and talk about funny stories, uh, and they're great, and they're not in, they're not inappropriate, they're not offensive, um, but when they're in black and white on paper suddenly you end up thinking you know what maybe we shouldn't put that in yeah not not because it's gross or, or you know inappropriate it's just ugh. do you really want to share that stuff you know what i mean so quite often the stuff that comes out of, of uh, a series of interviews is is uh, not not as complete as it otherwise would have been for that reason i guess if it's something yeah but involved, not, maybe it's good to share something a low point in your own personal life or maybe you know feeling terrible from the drink or the drugs or whatever but when it involves other people maybe it's best to, to leave it out precisely um yeah so you, you is there a difference for you like as a co-writer as a, or as a writer because you've like a big long list of books where you just wrote yeah I think, I, did, uh, I think i've done like i mean man i think i've done 11 or 12 books that were either somebody's autobiography or the official biography of a band right um where you're telling someone's story with their full participation and authorization. And then I think I must have done like 25 books, which are just my take on the story of a band, mm. you know, or a person. Yeah, the differences are profound. So, first of all, when you're writing a book with someone um, or with their approval, well, then it's, it's by definition, you need their approval, right? You know, someone else is. is potentially stopping you saying what you want to say or moderating what you have to say. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, in fact, it's, it's fine. You know, it's a collaboration. I, I get on well in partnership with people. But um, 
you have to bear that in mind when it comes to the schedule because it can slow you down a little bit, right? People say, well, you know, perhaps you could have phrased that a little differently or maybe we should take this out, take that out, or add this in. Um, or, uh, you know what? My manager says we, don't, we shouldn't do this. And mm. My wife would rather we didn't say this, which is all fine. It's absolutely fine. It just means that everything takes a little bit longer. On the other hand, if it's just you, you can say what you want within uh, the bounds of legality and taste. Um, and uh, uh, so you're freer in that sense. Um, but at the same time, then you're writing a story that is just your interpretation of history. You know, uh, it's not from the uh, it's not from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, so there are differences, and I I think it's more fun to write with people actually, despite what I just said. You know, they have magic address books that means that you know suddenly Gene Simmons can do the forward of Frank Bellows book. You know, um, and suddenly I. I Oh, I can't even think. All the uh, um, Dave Grohl did the forward to Max Cavalera's book. I had a phone call with Dave Grohl. That's like, amazing. Hell? Yeah, yeah, it was great. You know, he's a real nice guy. You know, he's, as mm. his PR would suggest, he's a real sweetheart. Most of these people are all right, really. They're, they're decent people. Um, and you just get elevated into the world properly. You're, you're not orbiting it as a journalist. You're actually in it as a mm. writer and chronicler of these things. Um, so they both have their strengths, you know, really. It must be exhaustive when you're doing just the writing of the book on your own, like to find out all the info about the bands and where they well, and all this stuff. I was a journalist first, mm. so my research skills were trained there. I was on Record Collector magazine for quite a while, um, and now on Bass Player magazine, obviously. And in those situations, you are trained to get your facts right. Um, but, you know, you, you know, yeah, it's just a case of having solid research skills um, and being aware of accuracy and taking, you know, the time to get your facts right. Um, and involving all the necessary people that need to be involved. I say to people who who ask me how to get into this, that really, as I age, the more more I think the time management is is <laughs> is the key to everything, not talent, right? <laughs> you know, I'm a decent writer. Yeah. But I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't know, insert the name of the best writer in the world, whoever that is. Uh, what I am, however, uh, is good at communications, um, punctual, and uh, hit deadlines. And, you know, I, I, I tend to be hyper aware of getting things done the way that uh, they should be done. Um, and that's really uh, the secret of building a career, no matter what you do. In fact, you can apply those lessons to base precisely, can't you? Mm, okay. Definitely. Yeah. You Time do what very needs important. to be done. Yeah. You don't do what you think you want to do unless it's your solo band. You do what the song requires. And uh, th that's a good awareness to have in all walks of life, I think. Definitely, yeah. So obviously you have to be a huge fan of these bands to spend half a year writing a book about them uh well it's a good question you um you either need to be a fan of their music or you need to be interested in, in themselves as people really uh otherwise yeah because it's not just committing six months of your life to someone sometimes these things take five years to do mm. and you do several at the same time i remember the first book i did with someone was with glenn hughes of deep purple and that was a, de a deliberate decision on my part i wanted to get into working with people uh, to understand how that how that worked, not just writing about people. And I think we spent five years on it or something crazy. It didn't need to be that long, but it took mm. that long to get the deal right. It took that long to get all the, the, the content correct, the picture research, you know, the manager was involved, the agent was involved, there were two publishers because there was a hardback and a softback. Um, so the admin, it really takes up way, way more than the book writing. <laughs> book writing is, is the small fun bit, you know. Um, is it exhausting was what you said earlier. Uh, it's not exhausting though. You map out your time, don't you? And if you have a job that you enjoy, and it sounds like such a cheesy cliche, if you have a job that you enjoy, it's not like a job. Um, it's, it's, it's 
really good and it's fun. I'm lucky enough that I get to meet tons of interesting people and learn astounding facts all the time. Um, so the only thing that's exhausting about life is, is being 50. And, and <laughs> uh, I've 50 got is the new, new 30. Well, I, I, I like that idea. I'm not sure if it's entirely correct. More like 40. Probably. 40 maybe, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I, I will say that um, you, you can't complain if you fill your life up voluntarily with busyness then you're the one who got yourself in that position you know you know you don't have to do these things no you, can, you, can, you know the more you put into life the more you get out another cheesy cliche which unfortunately has turned out to be true um so uh yes people do occasionally say how do you edit a, an issue of bass player every four weeks and also write a couple of books a year and also do a fair bit of freelance writing for various people and the answer is time management i mm. probably work i don't know i certainly work 50 hours a week maybe more but it's you know it's not hard you know it's, it's fun i've been in this office for 16 years you know and my kids have gone in that time from being tiny babies to like massive teenagers uh so, and it's been nice to be around for them uh so i, I have no complaints whatsoever but that, you're the master of your own domain though that's the thing i'm the same i spend 50 hours a week probably playing bass and making stuff to do a bass but if i want to take two or three days three days off to go do something else i don't have anyone telling me i can't do that and i know i'll catch up like yeah, you have those. It's it's about control and choices, isn't it? Really, you know, you, when you're self-employed, you actually end up working harder than you would otherwise. Mm. Um, but that's fine. It's, like I said before, it's not really work, is it? If no one's cracking the whip over you and telling you what to do. No, it's it's a weird thing. <laughs> You'll happily do fifty hours. But the book with uh, Glenn Hughes is cool. It's kind of like a picture book, isn't it? More than a traditional biography. Actually, no. It's uh, it's eighty thousand words of, of oh, is text. It? it does have a lot of pictures in it. Yeah, there's a lot of. The, I was looking through it online. There's a lot of pictures in it yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's, 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 there's a ton of good stuff in there but no believe me we we busted our balls on that to get that right that's a pretty long hefty bit of text <laughs> it's good though. Uh, it's done out well yeah i've seen him in concert i saw him two years ago he's he likes to talk about you know his past in the concert he'll talk about you know his drink and drug problems over the years and i suppose he's trying to show yeah. people you know that you can you know get out get past think, it and be <clears throat> i mean glenn is 70 this year i think and uh you know i think when he gets to that point He's, he's in good mick, he's healthy and, yeah. you know, healthy and happy. But, you know, the years are drawing in. And I think at that point, you probably want to share a bit of your wisdom. And uh, yes, he has been through um, drug addiction profoundly um, and has been sober for whatever it is now, 30 years probably, or I don't know, 25, 30 years. Um, and he does like to share those stories, but that's fine because it's him, you know. Um, it's part of what he does. And for him, music and survival and health are all part of the same thing. And they mm. they really are, you know, when you think about it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, he will talk about that stuff. But that's what makes him interesting. You know, he did defeat the dread cocaine and the dread alcohol. <laughs> and finally. a lot of his contemporaries have passed away and he's, you know, still rocking. People like... didn't make it. A lot of yeah. people absolutely did not make it through those things. And um, it's interesting, actually. I uh, When I look at the people I've worked with, whose autobiographies I've written, um, the majority are sober or cleaned up people. Um, and that wasn't through my choice. That wasn't like me saying, well, I only want to work with people who are addicted to something. It's not like that at all. Um, it's just chance, really. And, and that, that uh, the music industry, um, certainly in the classic rock industry, where I tend to operate, um, is populated by people who've been through all sorts of 70s and 80s addictions um, and come through the other side, fortunately for them. Um, and, you know, we, we could all fall into that, couldn't we? You know? Yeah, totally. When um, the temptation is just there, yeah. like, you know, for these people. It's well, always yeah, I mean, that, so, okay. And I've talked about this before. I think <clears throat> if you're on a tour bus traveling the world um, and it's full of booze and you've got two days off and 
people are all smashing it down all around you and it's a really good party and it's fun um then you probably would drink the stuff yeah you? You probably would and then you do it the next night as well with people saying come on let's have some drinks put mm. the party after the show and then you've got that adrenaline surge of the show that you need to come down from in order to get some sleep so i totally understand why people fall into excess alcohol use mm. um drugs was never really my thing so i, I can't really imagine what would what would draw you into endless cocaine or endless heroin yeah other yeah. than it's there and it's a lifestyle you know and it's a it's a it's a, an expectation almost actually um maybe not now but but certainly for some of these older chaps who, who, who went through the 60s and 70s and 80s then probably that the environment was more suited to that stuff then um it became normal you know when black sabbath were doing their albums there was people bringing in mountains of cocaine and all that kind of stuff and if it becomes normal then you don't question it i suppose but these days it's not really like that in the well we're all broke anyway so the big money is gone well there's that but i think i think the industry won't tolerate it you know i mean uh who was i talking to one of the people i work with who went through this said that around 86 87 when you had people like motley Crue and aerosmith sobering up and cleaning up that was when management really and record companies said you know what we're not tolerating this stupid behavior anymore you know, this is costing us money. You're not showing up at gigs. You're not making fly dates. Your, your, your health is bad. You can't play well. People are complaining. You're spending all your money. Um, let's now operate in a responsible manner. And for once, let's try and behave like adults, right? And I think basically that was a, I remember it happening. I remember loads and loads of people cleaning up and talking about it in the music press, sort of around 1990. Mm. Um, and obviously it never went away. Uh, and, and obviously people continue to, to, to use that stuff and suffer the consequences. Um, but I think the industry had to mature a little bit at that point. And um, uh, it was probably, much as it's boring and old to say, it, it probably was a good thing, wasn't it, you know, for people's health. Yeah, it's not as rock and roll, but you're right, Jeff. Or if you want your, um, your your heroes to be still rocking up to Paul McCartney's age, they kind of have to be <laughs> healthy. Like. There you go. Makes sense, right? But um, what was I going to say after losing my trail of thought there now? Probably because I was rambling on about stuff. <laughs> no you're, you're great no i was going go back to your point you were saying that even if you're not to- really into a band their story can kind of inspire you because i was watching um yeah supersonic by oasis and i'm not i wouldn't really be into oasis like um nothing against them but they just passed yeah, yeah. me by you know i didn't listen music to music didn't speak to you yeah no i get it but um uh, the- yeah that's a good example actually uh i mean i liked us i liked quite a few of their early songs uh and then then tuned out like a lot of people did it's more the story that's interesting right mm. the cultural position and the impact that they made on the world around them and you know bands like that don't come along very often no with that dramatic a story or that profound an impact um so that's exactly what i'm looking for an interesting story to tell and to dive into i think it was for me it was one of the best stories i ever saw where i saw myself in it they were so working class they were just such lads, especially the footage of them in the practice room back in the day. Like you, you were just thinking, sure, that could be anyone I knew growing up with or myself. Back. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing yeah. that they made it really um, because uh, it's not like they came from money. You know, you know, they were spotlight nowadays. You really need to have some sort of supportive background. Don't you? It was all family yeah. who's prepared to buy you a bass amp. Um, you know, um, no, it's, it's, a, it's quite a story. It's a great story. Yeah. And have you seen much trends in the bass world over the years? Like um, a kind of slap bass kind of fell out of popularity for a while, didn't it? Well, in the it, 90s, yeah. the 2000s, yeah. back now. Like. Yeah. Well, it's, this is well known, right? And this is before I was working on Bass Player magazine. In the 80s, it was it was game on for expensive, interesting bass guitars, wasn't it? You know, the first mm. proper five strings, graphite, 
headless. <clears throat> slap bass was, was, was and, and I do mean slap bass in the 80s style as opposed to the thumping and plucking of the 70s, mm. right? So your Larry Graham stuff. Um, and then uh, into the 90s, there was that movement towards old vintage stuff, which started with grunge and went into Britpop. You know, so you had Kurt Cobain playing old, what was it? It was either Mustang or Jaguar, wasn't he it? He played yeah. both. He brought them yeah. into, made it, no one, they weren't expensive. And then he started playing them and everyone wanted one. Yeah, Time right. Wars. It was sort of surf rock, wasn't it, before mm-hmm. then, you know, like Dick Dale and the rest of them. Um, and uh, then uh, Oasis came along and sealed the deal because then those bands were all playing vintage Fenders and Gibsons and stuff. Um, and, uh, excuse me. And you would never be seen, and you would never be seen with a with a fretless five string, you know, <laughs> or or a headless no. bass ever, uh, with a graphite neck or a phenolic fingerboard or whatever. Um, but then uh, that all came back. So now I've done a bit of teaching at uh, BIM, you know, the, the music college. Yep. Uh, there's four or five of them in, in uh, the UK. There's one in Ireland. It's in du- there's one in Dublin. Dublin, yeah, and there's a, there's one in either one or two in Germany as well. Um, so I've done a bit of teaching there primarily journalism and um, uh, uh, the politics of popular music. Um, and I see, I've seen a lot of young bass players there who are sort of 19, 20, 21, um, all of whom are insanely good. I mean, they, they put the rest of us to shame. Of course. Um, yeah. Of course they do, right? Because they've got Scott's bass lessons on YouTube and yeah. they've got the, the whole of the internet to teach them how to do it. It's like you've you a thousand uh, Hot Licks DVDs to watch on the internet. As opposed to what I had when I was a kid, which was literally a cassette, a tape cassette of some bloke <laughs> playing, saying, this is how you tune up your bass. They're so badly written. I've lo- I've, I got, um, I, I teach out of a charity shop, so I got loads of old how to play bass oh. magazine. And they're, they're so badly written. It's like, here are the notes on your bass. Next chapter, here's a load of arpeggios and how to read music. And they've just skipped about two years. Where it's boring. Like, right, right, exactly. Really, really badly thought out and really boring and crap. Um, anyway, so these kids, that I saw playing bass. A lot of them were playing these headless models, you know. I think Ibanez put out a, a headless one recently. Um, and um, uh, a couple of them got, uh, Dingwall is popular. Yeah, fan frets. Fan frets, yeah. um, They're all slapping like nutters. And that that's really because it's come back into vogue in, in metal and jazz and in, and in rock and in pop actually, and in EDM even, you know. So it's an anything goes situation now when it comes to bass styles for sure. Um, there, there are tra- fashions and trends, definitely. There are certain models which have their moment in the, in the, in the what's the word? Limelight? Is that yeah, 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 in yeah. the moment in the limelight? The, the zeitgeist of, of bass gear. I and they come and go, don't they? Yeah. You know, um, and you get your old favourites. I was just talking about that um, Sansa and Purdy that's come in, you know, they've been making them for what, 30 years now, probably? Mm. Um, they, they still keep going. Um, and, you know, you've obviously got, you know, <clears throat> Fender and, and, and you know all the variants of, of the of the of the J and P bases that come our way. Um, oh my God! I, where, where do I where do you want to go with this? I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interesting bass products all the time. Yes. Yeah. Effects, bass guitars, uh, and that accessories. You know, and we try and cover as many as we can. Um, trends. Really, the the one that I'm trying to highlight and push is what I said earlier to you, which is the affordable bases. Now, I want to I want to put more focus on. And really try and zero in on what you can get for five hundred dollars or three hundred and fifty dollars or you know mm. two hundred and fifty pounds, um, because we can write about five thousand dollar bases all day, you know, and they're all wonderful, they're all brilliant. But does the kid who's reading this really, you know, uh, uh, is, is he or she going to go out and buy this thing? Probably not. No. Um, 
so that's what I'm that's what I'm pushing towards as an editor. Anyway, other than that, the the, the, goal, the goal of editing bass player magazine is just to represent the community and make sure everyone gets a voice and, and chronicle what's happening and try and push forward what's happening as well, um, and make sure that in years to come people understood what was happening in the bass world in 2021. That's the goal. Yeah, well, you can see like even we're talking about the influencers like um, Nate Navarro. He's playing with Devin Townsend now from playing on YouTube. So like mm. there's a crossover from people being on the internet world to being on tour with big acts. Right. That, that's starting yeah, to yeah. happen. Yeah, why not? Although, you know, at the top, they just don't need to. <laughs> at the top end, they don't need to tour. They don't need to leave their bedroom. You know, why would they? No, um, but it's nice but to get of course, out most tour. Not at the top end. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you were talking about Charles, uh, Charles Berthoud earlier. That's probably not how you pronounce his name. Berthoud, I think. Thank you, Berthoud. <laughs> anyway, he's in this uh, next issue as well with Davey Five before as well. Um, I was asking him uh, whether print magazines are just too quaint nowadays for people like him. And uh, he replied in a diplomatic way and we had some laughs. But, uh, he's a great bass player, that guy. Oh, amazing. He, uh, he's British though, isn't he? Moved to America. That's right. Yeah. Very, very technically accomplished. Yeah. Oh, he's, um, he has a book, a tapping book he wrote with um, the late Jim Stinnett. It's, it's a really good book. Right, good. I didn't know that. So maybe he might bring out another one. Hope so. You know, I, I think there's room for books. I really do. You know, um, much of the online lessons um, are really good. And in fact, you know, Scott Devine does such an amazing job, um, as well as all the other people that we know and love in this industry. Um, there's your podcast, there's the Talking Bass podcast, there's With Bass in Mind. Yeah. Um, God, there's so many more, aren't there? And, the, you know, the quality is so high. Um, so uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of what we said a minute ago about these kids who have <clears throat> all sorts of resources available to them as bass players, uh, which, which uh, I certainly never have. Um, which I think is, is, is a good thing. It does mean that, yes, people are stuck to screens even more than they already were, but I think that's probably the way it's going to go now. <laughs> yeah, it's every, everyone's different. You know, with my students, I kind of, I, I'll give them like a one month, I tell them to make your practice regime at the start of the month and then you have it on a piece of paper and a drum loop and you work on that all month and then you can consume all the YouTube knowledge you want and other at the start of the next month and then ignore it for the month if you can. You can't ignore it. We're all obsessed with watching these videos. But that's <laughs> the goal. Like, it's re- just focus right. on your, your regime for the month and then there consume loads of other stuff again the next month. Oh, I like that. I like the month-by-month month approach. That's great. Yeah, but there's loads of new new um, base websites popping up um, as well as Scott's Space Lessons. But I suppose just people just find the one that they like and the people they kind of gravitate towards. Yeah, I mean, I think that market's pretty much saturated now. Um, there's a lot of good stuff there. The danger is always that there's too much stuff, good stuff, you know. Um, you, know you go on YouTube and you, you search for beginners' bass lessons. It's probably 500 of them. You know? Yeah, well, everything but, gets uh, saturated. Even the bass podcast world, like you know, when I started this, there was I think there might have been one or two more, two others. That was only last year, and now there's like ten, I'd say, after popping up since. So things, and then eventually, like you, you can't interview the same bass players can't be talking all the time to people, so. <laughs> Things do, do run into a, a natural end eventually. Yeah, yeah, eventually, eventually, I don't know. Maybe they should just switch the internet off for a year and see what happens. <laughs> That'd be great, right, to see what happens. Well, it'd be good for us. Everyone would come and read our magazine. Yeah, geez, the magazines. Would, uh, well, I've been hinting strongly that someone might get me a subscription to Bass Player for my birthday or Christmas at some stage. So uh, I it, hope it, that happens. Yeah. yeah. If, well, I can tell you, plugging here, that subscription rates are very, very reasonable at the moment. So, uh Make sure that happens. Well, not even just for me, for anyone's wife or girlfriend or partner of any kind is listening. 
that's a really good they always say you're impossible to buy a present for I can guarantee anyone would be over the moon to get like oh by the oh, way think... you're getting bass player every week every <laughs> month <laughs> plus a backup copy yeah no I'd say the subs department at Future do a great job they uh, they really do put together these amazing deals especially in America I, I can't really understand how they do it but uh, uh, subscription numbers are high you know people people love reading the magazine they love it landing on their on their doormat every month uh, every four weeks so it's my job to uh to try and repay that expectation as well as i can yeah and the lessons are really good like um i have a bunch of them there like and before i ever saw steve lawson on scott space lessons he was doing them in your magazine like the back mm. and loads of people and there's really in- interesting so i don't know how they keep coming up with lessons for the last how how many years it's been going but there's some gold in there like <clears throat> well it's interesting i uh when i became editor of bass guitar magazine in 2012 um, it was a little bit chaotic. There was a lot of overlap and there were rather too many lessons covering the same ground. Um, so I stripped it down pretty fast uh, and I introduced the three tier system. So uh, green for beginner, amber for intermediate, you know, red for advanced, which seem, seems to have worked quite well. People are into it. Um, and I recruited um, the best teachers that I could at that level. So uh, currently that's Steve Lawson, as you've as you just said. Now, Steve is a, an amazing beginner's teacher i mean he's obviously an incredibly accomplished player mm. with a with a long uh, and respected um series of releases behind him but as a beginner teacher especially he's very very good at not patronizing people and understanding that we don't need to learn babyish music right but, but when we when we start yeah we yeah. quite often are quite sophisticated music consumers when we start to learn to play bass right and so we have a reference library of music in our heads that we can refer to uh, so he's very good at striking that balance. Uh, and then we have Phil Mann, who does the intermediate lesson, and Phil's obviously a, a well-known teacher. Um, and he's great at really motivating people, kind of, mm. you know, giving them giving them inspiration and giving them um, the energy to, to move forward, take that big next step. And then for years and years and years, the advanced uh, teacher was Stu Clayton, who's a publisher, he's a well-known bass player, incredible fount of knowledge at that level. Uh, well, at all levels, but at that level, he's been a great teacher for us. And he's just stepped down. Uh, and his place has been taken by Rich Brown, uh, the Canadian bass player. Oh yeah, Rich, I had Rich on the podcast. For, we had great. a great chat. Brilliant guy. He's just as we speak, which is where we know late June. Uh, he has. We're, we're just designing his first lesson and uh, going to print that in a couple of weeks. Uh, and he's great. You know, another uh, another teacher who really understands the students and, and can really um, communicate easily in, in a friendly, warm way. The danger is when you've been teaching, and I know this because I'm a teacher. Uh, occasionally uh, the danger when you're a teacher if you do it for decades and decades is that you get demotivated and you, you kind of the process starts to annoy you and you've been doing it too long and you, you, know, you, you can't you can't really be bothered to sensitively handle the problems that your students have and um, mm. you can tell that in the way that some people teach they're actually quite hostile in the way they teach i, I can i always take the lessons i take the whole summer out well from june till september off from lessons so it's like you know but all the energy is back in September. I can handle any kind of student and even the very beginner who can't figure out where to put the fingers on the frets, you know, that kind of refreshes me every year. Like you need that a few months off, otherwise you'd go nuts, right? Mm. You're like, why don't you understand this? <laughs> Play the goddamn note. <laughs> There's only two notes. Um, no, I totally get it. And uh, teaching is exhausting, actually, uh, however you do it, whether you do it face-to-face or online or in writing, it's hard because you have to try and really, really create a space for someone to flourish in. Um, that requires effort, tiring. Um, so fortunately, 
indeed the people that I have on my magazine um, are very motivated and very kind actually about the way they do it. They want people to do well. And I want to mention Ryan Medora as well, who does, who just started this new column last year called I Spy. And it's mm. called that because she digs into popular tunes that we all know um, to find uh, awesome bits of theory that we can use. Right. Oh, and, and I actually just point- started a series on YouTube with the exact same concept. It's called Unnecessary mm. Breakdowns. Right, I spent like, <laughs> 20 minutes breaking down a baseline. You already know all the theory and absolutely everything. Hey, right? What a great idea, you know. It's a very good idea. And people have responded very well to it. And uh, she's already um, uh, a teacher over at No Trouble, um, which is a great website. I mean, I, you know, talking more broadly about teaching websites, I've, uh, not websites, but online presences, I've, I've been quite proactive about uh, building relationships with the, uh, with the forums. Um, so we, until last year, I had a, a really cool, which I might resurrect actually, but I had a really cool double page feature called, um, I think it was just called the forums actually. And it was, um, a kind of a news, uh, section where people who'd be, people at no trouble, um, base chat, talk base and, uh, uh, um, the base players only, uh, did a little roundup of what people have been talking about on the forums that month. And it seems a bit wacky, I know, to have people talking in print about what's been happening online. But what it did was it formed a bridge between the print and online worlds in, uh, in those base communities. Um, and uh, I'm friends with all those people. And what they do over there is amazing. You know, they, 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 have, they, they, they do great, great work and they really have a, a thriving community, um, just as we do, but ours is in print and, and on social media and theirs is a website. Um, so it's nice to know those people. I've been very privileged to meet uh, an incredible bunch of people, actually, in this last nine years as editor of the mag. Um, it's a, I always knew it was a friendly community, but that's been proven to me time and time again um, by interacting with these people, um, primarily at the NAMM show every year in California, um, but at all the other millions of events elsewhere as well. So, yeah, it's a good bunch, the base community. I no, the, the base community is class, like even in the, the groups online, there's... Very little, like there might be a little discourse, but not an argument, you know, as opposed to some of the guitar groups I'm on, they'll, they'll be killing each other, like, you know. I mean, <laughs> like I said earlier, if people tend to, if people want to be horrible to each other online, they can do it. It doesn't really affect me. Um, you know, I, I don't indulge in that behavior myself, probably because I'm not 19 years old. But yeah. uh, also, it's not in my nature, you know, I'm, I'm much more relaxed about everything. Uh, than than most people are and people people but as i said earlier to re- to reiterate people get this way because they care because they're passionate aren't they? and they have these their views mm. uh, which they feel are important and they are important you know it's just it's it's about how you how you uh, enunciate that opinion <laughs> that counts you know whether you do it in a friendly way or not uh, yeah well i think basically i put up my that video last week and i made one mistake in my theory no it was a mistake i said i wasn't sure but the bass player emailed me and did a Zoom call to show me how, how explain what I was. So that's the difference between a bass. If that was a guitarist, he would have been straight in the comments, like ripping me apart. But he's like, I didn't want to comment. And he, we just had a chat on Zoom for like an hour and went through a bunch of theory stuff and helped me explain it a bit, a bit better. Like, how cool is that? Like, the guitar player would have said, bass craft bass crap, you mean? <laughs> I'm waiting for that. Wait, that's coming. That's coming. Only a matter of time. But uh, cheers for coming on, Joel. I must say thanks for having me in uh, the the magazine. It's behind. It's framed there behind me. Um, it's definitely one. Where of is my... it? I can't see. Oh, there you are. Yeah, yeah. Who's on the cover? It's uh, it was the London Bay Show cover. So it's um, that's yeah, B- Stu Ham, Billy, Billy, Sh- yeah, Billy Sheen, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stu Ham, Divinity Rocks. 
Man, that's a while ago. Was that like six years ago? 2015 or something like that? Uh, oh, yeah, at least six or seven years ago. So. No, it's been a while. Well, that's good. I'm very glad we were able to get you in there. And that's uh, nice that you've got it uh, uh, next to, is that a Spectre? It's a uh, Sire M7. A Sire, yeah, very Sire, nice. Yeah, which yeah, yeah. I don't good, play because yeah. I just, I figured out I don't really like uh, active bases very much. So <laughs> I never play it. God, that's an argument to get into another time. <laughs> it was just too, uh, it just feels like an alien to me after playing Fenders my whole life. Yeah, well, there's something it's to be said. It's so <laughs> weird. Like I say, what is this thing? Uh, give me back my square. Yeah, it's too loud. And it's too loud. Too def- boost. Yeah, blow your uh, preamps up. But uh, cheers. So uh, is you're not too busy on social media. It's just if people want to check you out, just read the magazine. Is that Would that be fair to say? Well, me personally? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram, but uh, not all day, every day. You know, mm. I try to try to have a life <laughs> offline. Uh, so I'm quite, yeah, I'm highly Googleable. You know, you, you can find me uh, if you want to talk to me. And obviously, um, uh, if you read Bass Player Magazine, I'm, I'm in it all over it. So you can contact me through there. So uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing what anybody has to say. And get the new book, um, Fathers, Brothers, and Sons. That that when that's out. Thank you. Yeah, it's out in October. Um, that'll be available everywhere, and that's. Uh, uh, yeah, as you just said, Fathers, Brothers and Sons, Frank Bellows' autobiography, forward by Gene Simmons, as written by me. I, I can't put it better than that, so cheers, man. Thanks for having me on. No problem. <laughs>